Hi, it's Mike Wheeler here, co-host of Agility at Work with Kim Leary. She'll be joining us in just a moment. We hope all of you are doing well in this upside-down world. When people ask me if I'm okay, I say yes, ATC, with the ATC standing for All Things Considered. And today, actually, I'm better than okay because Kim and I are about to talk with our friend and colleague, Max Bazerman, about his new book, Better Not Perfect. It's about making better, more responsible decisions. I should note before we begin that this is the first virtual podcast we've done outside the studio, and I expect um, there'll probably be some ambient noise, maybe a seagull up on my roof or someone's uh, voice echoing down the hallway. We hope that'll give the episode a uh, homegrown flavor. So let's get Max and Kim into the conversation. Kim, how are you doing? Doing well, Mike. How about you during these challenging times? Yeah, I think I heard a little bit of challenging times in the doing well. A friend of mine said that uh, when people ask how you're doing, uh, you say great with an asterisk, you know, that that they are challenging on so many different uh, levels. But it's a pleasure to be resuming our collaboration on this. And today we've got uh, our colleague Max Bazerman coming in to talk about uh, Better Not Perfect. Which seems a perfect topic uh, to help us get better uh, during uh, the challenges at hand. And he's talking about in terms of the decisions that we make that have moral consequences and so forth. And I think, as you suggest, there's something in the air on that. So let's invite uh, Max in. Hey, Max. We're looking forward to learning more about your new book, Better Not Perfect. I'm curious about what drew you to this topic, specifically the topic of how we think about and make, I hope, um, better moral choices. As you know, I've uh, long studied decision-making and negotiation. I've been interested in how to help people be more rational in their thinking and to uh, um, create more value in their in negotiations. And as my work has moved more into the ethical world, I'm interested in helping people create the most value that they can across all sentient beings. I use a lot of the logic from my past work on decision-making and negotiation in the realm of ethics to think about what would it mean to be as ethical as we possibly could and how to move us in the right direction. So for me, I use the Bentham and Mill or Peter Singer notion of utilitarianism to create as much good as you possibly can, or some people would say maximize happiness and minimize pain. And that's the goal state that I strive for in my own life. But yet, kind of like the negotiation area, I'm well aware that uh, getting to perfection isn't going to happen. So given that perfection isn't going to happen, how can I help provide direction for myself, but also for readers to be better, even if they can't be perfect, and to reach what uh, what might be their maximum sustainable level of goodness? So I may have come to this fairly late, but 
it seems that something is in the air. Uh, I think you know the work of Jonathan Haidt, who's now at NYU. I'm thinking across the river of our colleague Josh Green and so forth. Do you have a sense that people are giving more attention to uh, to the topic, or have I just finally opened my eyes? The topic of ethics has moved in much more practical directions. So I think that historically there have been behavioral science, behavioral scientists, social psychologists, organizational behaviorists who have described how people do behave. Philosophers have described um, how we should behave in a normative sense. But what I see is a new direction of much more focus on prescription or giving guidance on how uh, what does it look like to give people practical guidance on how they could create more value in the world? And, and I certainly see my book as part of that program. So you mentioned uh, Josh Green across the river, our excellent colleague who's a philosopher by training, but a social psychologist in terms of his position at Harvard. And Josh Green and Peter Singer are certainly intellectual heroes of mine in the ethical world. And, and I often find when I'm writing that they said something sort of like this before, and I find inspiration in so much of what they've written. Yeah, I was in touch with uh, Josh a few years back, and I need to follow up more in his work. I'm curious, Kim, at the Kennedy School of Government, where you teach, and also at the School of Public Health, I know that it's a, both are very big places, but is attention being given to ethical decision-making in the public sphere? Oh, I think um, right now, especially as we are struggling with concurrent crises from the pandemic to economic turbulence to the long overdue with racial reckoning, uh, most, most especially yes, I would say. And that's one of the questions I had for you, Max. Uh, what a time for this work to come out when public decision-making and creative decision-making is just foisted upon us whether or not we wanted to be in that, uh, in, in that position. So uh, tell us about the big lessons from the book that, so that our listeners can begin to think about where they want to start first. So I, I think that the book is extremely topically relevant. So when we look at our national leadership we see so much value destruction that it was shockingly unnecessary. And we can pick across so many domains, but one is destroying what was a very effective international trading system and creating mm. problems for China, but creating even bigger problems for the US because of the way we think about trade and having a leader who thinks in terms of a mythical fixed pie and beating people rather than value creating. And the fixed, um, the fixed pie, Max, I, mean, that's, I think you get a nickel anytime anybody says that. But, but it's a win-lose proposition that uh, for me to do better, you have to do worse. Is that, is that a fair characterization? Uh, absolutely. And, and well said. And, and I would say that if, if there's a topic that so vividly illustrates that the 
that the pie is not fixed, that it's a mythical fixed pie. International trade is a terrific example of that, where so much value can be created through the international trading system. But we, we, we see across so many domains, once COVID hit, we have a president who basically said every state is on their own so to create a bidding system over scarce resources rather than creating a national policy that would use scarce resources where they could create the most value. So we see how critical it is to have a value creation focus as we see value being destroyed by the current leadership in the United States. So what Better Not Perfect is meant to provide is a framework for helping many of us, including myself, think through what does it mean to make decisions that would create more value? And that certainly includes deliberating rather than trusting our intuition. That means looking for joint gains from trade. It means thinking about the world more broadly rather than in tribalistic ways that, that, our, that my colleague Josh Green um, so nicely um, criticizes. So we're really trying to create a mind, a, a sort of a shift in mindset to focus on what, what does it mean broadly across lots of different domains to create more value. Just in terms of things that are more familiar to the choices that we make in work and in our, our private lives, can you just give me a couple of examples of where being more deliberative, maybe having a wider angle vision so that we can situate these in specific contexts? Sure. So, um, so I'm 65. I turned 65 a few weeks ago. So if I go back to my 50th birthday, I wanted to get myself a birthday present. What I did for my 50th birthday was I audited my life to identify what things was I doing in life that I didn't really enjoy. And way up there on the top of the list was reviewing papers for academic journals. <laughs> <laughs> that were papers that I wouldn't have been reading if I wasn't on the editorial board of that journal. And I was reading it out of a sense of obligation. Meanwhile, at 50, I, I wasn't getting much out of <clears throat> reviewing the papers. And I knew lots of 25 to 30 year olds who would actually enjoy the task, pay attention more and do a better job. So for my 50th birthday, I quit four editorial boards and dramatically reduced the demands to review papers. And you could view this as a selfish act, and it's possible that it was, but I, ho I hope not. I think that I made my own life better, but more importantly, I think I harnessed a bunch of my time that I could put to better use. So I think I created value more broadly by eliminating tasks where I don't think that I had a comparative advantage and where my time could be put to greater use elsewhere. So I think how we think about time is one sort of excellent Can, can, can I uh, hop in here and enlist Kim? Kim, you're the psychologist. It's interesting. You could have done that the day before your birthday or a year before your birthday, but somehow or other that was an event that prompted broader reflection. It wasn't as if there was a specific decision where there were pros and cons on both sides. Kim, what is it in people's psyche that causes them to step back and, and look? And, and that question is out of the blue, and there may not be an answer. But I'm curious how you reacted to that. 
Well, Mike, you actually are on the line today with two psychologists. Uh, Max is a social psychologist Fair and enough. I'm a clinical psychologist. And so I, you know, I think your question is, you know, what gives moments like a birthday meaning? What is given so that one begins to engage in that kind of audit? Just like the kind of reckoning we're in right now, where uh, the, the, the pandemic uh, and all the associated uh, turbulence is causing a lot of people to, in one way or another, perhaps less formally than Max did, uh, begin to audit what's going well in their lives and in their community, and where do we need to make some pivots. So, Max, what you did at your birthday uh, celebration or in honor of your birthday, it seems to me that we're doing more broadly right now. Do you see evidence of that uh, as you talk to folks at school, as you talk to colleagues out in the field? So I think your observations are terrific. And I'll make the prediction that we will look back in 2020 will be a pivotal year in history because so much, hopefully, is going to change in November, but so much has changed in terms of racial justice and COVID. I think that people are kind of being shocked into rethinking some bad patterns that may have existed within themselves or, or society more broadly. So I think that this is a time where, where we see change going on and, I'm, and, and hopefully much of that change will be focused in ways that will create more value rather than less for, for the world. How, how about, we've talked about the kind of the broad situation in which we find ourselves that may be a real stepping back. But uh, your book also addresses when there is a decision before you, a specific thing in which you must act or not act or act in a particular way or a different way. What can we do? How can we develop a mindset that makes us more reflective? What's your advice on that? So there are multiple things that I think that we can do that make us more reflective. To begin with, we shouldn't wait for decisions to hit us by surprise, we should think in advance about the decisions that are likely to come up. And we could think of in advance of what are the values that we're trying to achieve and the decisions that we're making. So there are many departments and organizations that have the notion that they want to affirmatively search for new hires. But yet when the hire happens, it's very easy to focus on your existing networks. And when we use our existing networks, we're more likely to, to discriminate because our networks tend to consist of people who look a whole lot like ourselves. So to pre-commit to what are we trying to accomplish in the decisions that we see coming can be very helpful. Another strategy that I strongly advocate is to do more of your de important decisions comparatively rather than looking at one option at a time. When you look at one job candidate at a time, we know that, pe that people tend to discriminate based on irrelevant data. So we tend to pick men for math-related tasks and women for verbal-related tasks. When people compare two or more employees at the same time, the comparative process leads us to deliberate and to select people on more job relevant criteria. And discrimination 
is dramatically reduced, if not eliminated, in joint deliberations rather than one at a time. And if we go back in time, the philosopher John Rawls developed an interesting cognitive idea of if we want to figure out what's just, what we need to do is put on a veil of ignorance, a veil of ignorance about who we are, what gender we are, what race we are, what country we were born in, whether we're rich or poor, and ask, without knowing who we are in society, how would we want goods and, uh, and resources to be distributed? And when we put on a veil of ignorance, we make a wide variety of decisions in more ethical ways than when we allow our self-serving biases to affect our decisions. So those are a handful of ways in which we can encourage deliberation. Max, I think that's so uh, important to, uh, as you say, give us practical ways to begin to address these long-standing dilemmas if we want uh, our world, our political system to be different. You know, the title of your book is also intriguing because there's something in there about the kind of outcomes we're gonna reach, better ones, but not necessarily perfect ones. Can you say a little more about what it's gonna take for us to accept the better and in lieu of the perfect? So, so I actually think people like the idea better. Um, and I think that perfect can be off, off-putting. So going back to earlier, I, I, I talked about philosophers offering normative ideas. And you could think of normative as providing at least some philosophical perspective on what ethical behavior looks like in perfection. And many ethical perspectives are, are simply too demanding. So utilitarianism or creating the most valuable value possible, that's too demanding. But I think a lot of us would be happy to think about how could we improve ourselves rather than being told, unless you do X, Y, and Z, which are very hard to do, um, we're, we're, we're going to define you as not being ethical enough. I, I don't want to judge people as not being ethical enough. I want to provide the guidance on how they could create more value in the world. And that's what better, not perfect is all about. As I think about um, where we are right now with some of the reckonings about what's fair and just, um, and I'm thinking, of course, about uh, the racial reckoning in play right now, some would say, um, well, better is incremental and we need something more transformative. How would you begin to address that line of, of reply? I think that a lot better sounds just fine. So I do think that we need some significant jolts, and I think that that's happening in society. And I think that it's absolutely fine to think about what a perfectionist state would look like. Um, but I, I think that when we tell people that unless you're perfect, we're going to criticize you for your deficiency, that, that simply isn't very motivating for, get, for getting people on board in terms of creating a less racist society. Uh, so, so I want to come up with a message that's sellable, whether we're talking about getting you to donate more and to donate more effectively or to create a more just world. I have learned so much from you and I've enjoyed collaborating with you. I'll confess, you Likewise, and I, Michael. I'll, thank you. I'll confess that uh, there are some things where uh, 
where we see things differently. So, uh, for example, uh, you know, the Kahneman-Tversky research, uh, which may be available to some people not. We're talking about Danny Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast and Slow. Um, you are a strong advocate of, of slow, and I certainly understand the, um, the perils of acting impulsively. But in an emergency situation uh, where somebody needs to be rescued, we can have the bystander problem. Uh, everybody is frozen, and then one person leaps to, to the rescue. And they haven't had time to do a decision tree or anything else, but they, at least in certain instances, do the right thing. Where does that fit into your equation? Is that just exceptional or, or, or what? Yeah, I think it's exceptional. So I think that there's lots of times to go with your fast decision processes and uh, Kahneman uh, thinking fast and slow sense. So we make thousands of unimportant decisions every day and the cost of deliberation is greater than the difference in the quality of the decision. So when you go to the grocery store, um, other than sort of a once a year checkup on how healthy you're eating, I think you want to go through a grocery store pretty quickly, making lots of fast decisions. There are going to be times when either you have to use your intuition or it isn't worth the costs of deliberating. But I would say for the vast majority of decisions that the professionals who might be listening to your podcast are going to make um, are slower systems, are more deliberative systems, both lead to better decisions and they lead to more ethical decisions as well. Uh, so I'm not arguing you should never use your intuition. I'm simply arguing if you're making important decisions and you have the opportunity to select between going with your intuition or deliberating, deliberating is a runaway winner. And there's certainly lots of information out there that encourages people in the opposite direction, including Malcolm Gladwell's, Gladwell's book, Blink, which encourages people to trust their intuition. Mm. Um, and, uh, and I would argue he sort of misrepresents his book when he talks about the fact that he claims that he gives um, coverage to both sides of the argument, but his coverage is far from balanced. And he wrote a book that people love to read, and he's a great writer. So people remember his misdirected information to a remarkable degree. I haven't heard you use the phrase uh, moral compass. And one of our colleagues at the Harvard Business School is kind of curious about how that phrase evolved and what it means. There are some people who learn over years in a macro sense. And I'm trying to think of the name of the... Uh, the fellow who wrote the hymn Amazing Grace. There's a, a line in it, I was once a wretch and now I'm saved. He was a slave trader. Right. He was a slave trader, and through a rather long and arduous process, he became an abolitionist. Now, it wasn't on his 50th birthday or something of that sort. It was some kind of processing of, of things that allowed him to be far more compassionate, and so forth. The light went on for him. H how about our core level of values and how they evolved? Does your book speak to that? The true north of the book is to create as much value as you can. But the book is also realistic mm -hmm. in saying 
you're probably not going to be perfect. You're probably going to engage in some tribalism in terms of prefer of overvaluing the people in your own family, in your own tribe to some degree. But if we can focus more on the equality of the interests of all of humanity, then we can head in the right direction. We can come become better. And I think one of the uh, amazing parts of the of your story about it, um, uh, the the guy who wrote Amazing Grace is that we don't want to focus on the fact on how terrible you've been, even though you've been truly terrible. We want to focus on how would we encourage you to be far far better for the rest of your life. And I think that that story is quite consistent. With, with that perspective. It's been good to have you on board, but it's not perfect because we are limited in time. So I want to point people to uh, Better Not Perfect by Max Bazerman. Kim, any last words here before we say farewell? You know, at this moment in time, uh, your advice, Max, that we think uh, in realistic ways about the value we can create uh, seems to be a message that we all can take into uh, our workplaces and even our, our home spaces, uh, especially as they're one and the same uh, during this uh, pandemic. Thank you for uh, the terrific input that you both have provided, and thanks for allowing me to um, communicate with you and your audience. Well, we hope to have you back very, very soon. Thank you. Thank you. Let's remind people about how they can chat with us and with their fellow listeners on our Negotiation 360 website. Well, it's not just the chat that they can have with us and other listeners, but there are other resources uh, on the site. Um, you can find my Negotiation 360 self-assessment and best practice app. There are links to online courses, and we're putting up articles that you and I have written together and maybe some others as well. So there's lots of stuff on agile negotiation and adaptive leadership. Much of it is free. We've even simplified the URL for podcast listeners. Here's how to find us. Just key in the letter N, as in negotiation, and the numbers 360.expert. That's N360.expert, and you'll find us.